1: is one of those sci-fi-sounding sources of energy that, when you think about it, is too good to be true. It's meant to be limitless, it hardly produces any waste, and best of all, it's carbon-free. Fusion is at the heart of how stars shine, and scientists have tried for decades to reproduce it here on Earth, but it's proven hard, really hard. And for almost the entire history of the worldwide effort, nuclear fusion has been the preserve of universities or government laboratories. In the last few years, though, companies backed by venture capital money have also been getting involved. These companies reckon they'll be able to make fusion power work. And remarkably, some of them even claim that they'll be putting fusion powered electricity onto the grid within a decade expectations are high the excitement is clearly building has the time finally come for nuclear fusion to shine hello and welcome to babbage from the economist our weekly podcast on science and technology i'm alok jha the economist science correspondent today we'll explore the frontier of energy why nuclear fusion is once again getting people excited, and why this time it might actually work.
2: It's going to be a magic moment. I'm going to be, you know, maybe a decade older than I'd expected, but, you know, I'm jogging every day.
1: First though, we need to understand what nuclear fusion is. And how scientists have been trying to do it here on Earth. I spoke to Fernanda Rimini, who's an experimental fusion scientist with the UK Atomic Energy Authority. She currently works at JET, the Joint European Taurus, which is a research facility based in Oxfordshire, in southern England.
0: Nuclear fusion is what happens when you have two nuclei, which are the core of, of the atoms, that come close enough that they can fuse. So they become a different element. They produce a different element and different particles. And what happens is that the mass of what they produce is a tiny little bit less than the mass of the original nuclei. And because E equals MC squared, you get quite a lot of energy out. And when I say quite a lot of energy, the nuclear reactions give you probably about a million times per weight more energy than the chemical reactions of coal, gas, this sort of thing of burning oil.
1: So this is the reaction that uh, happens in the centre of the Sun. I mean, it's the thing that keeps stars shining. Why is it so difficult to replicate here on Earth?
0: Because we're talking about nuclei, so they are charged particles. And as you know from magnets, when you put two magnets that are charged, the the poles are the same, they repel each other. So in order to make them fuse, you have to go through giving them enough energy that they tunnel through the repulsion force, and then they can come close enough and fuse. This is the process that happens in the stars, and in the stars you have a huge amount of pressure, you have the density of this nuclei, it's very, very large. So basically everything is held together, and it can happen at much lower temperatures. On Earth, what we are trying to reproduce is something that we don't have We don't have these pressures, we don't have the conditions that happen in the stars, so instead we go for very high temperatures of these reacting nuclei, and the temperatures that we have in our experiments are 10, 20 times the temperatures inside the Sun. So that's why it's difficult. It's difficult because you have to heat up this mass of ions in order to get a significant amount of reactions.
1: OK, so inside a star, the core of a star where nuclear fusion is happening, there is a particular gravitational pressure that brings all of these nuclei together that helps them overcome this repulsion. And then you need a certain amount of temperature as well. And of course, trying to replicate those conditions on Earth is going to be difficult because we simply don't have that much gravity. So I suppose in the experiments on Earth, what you try and do is increase the temperature instead because you can't do the, the pressure as much. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's about right.
1: What are the advantages of nuclear fusion when compared to nuclear fission, which is the nuclear power that people might be more familiar with now, which involves splitting atoms?
0: One very easy way to say it is that fusion is that the reactions are very difficult to start. We've been talking about the high temperatures needed and very easy to stop. It's enough to have a problem in the control of those magnets and your fusion reactions will extinguish. As opposed to fission, where you can have uncontrolled reactions, runaway reactions, and that is one of the risks. The other risk is the, uh, the fact that fission uses fuel that could also be used for weapons, but fusion doesn't. And then it, one thing that we shouldn't hide is the fact that there is a, a sort of a, a radioactive waste issue with fusion as well, but it's lower levels of radioactivity and shorter timescales. So you don't have to bury these things for thousands of years. It's probably something in the hundreds of years, and we're talking about a big amount of material which is easier to control.
1: For many years, scientists and engineers have been trying to realise this dream. In the core of the Sun, hydrogen is converted into helium through nuclear fusion. As Fernanda mentioned, the challenge is to replicate this process, or something like it, within a reactor on Earth. A scientist who's been working on this problem for almost half a century is Stephen Cowley. He's the leading light in the world of fusion and has held almost every important job in the field. Currently, he's the director of the Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory in America.
2: Probably the predominant way we think we're going to be able to do this is by containing your fusion fuel. uh, In the case of the, the easiest fusion reaction to do is between two kinds of hydrogen. It's deuterium which is heavy hydrogen you get it from seawater and tritium which is super heavy hydrogen uh, which you get from reacting with lithium and what you do to those is you put them in a cage made of magnetic field and you strip the electron off the atom and then these charged particles are contained by the magnetic field that's what we call a plasma and then you pass an enormous electric current through it and heat it up to these temperatures like you know, 100 million degrees. It's a process that requires these immense temperatures. And you can't let the plasma touch the wall because if it touched the wall, it will get cold. And so this cage of magnetic field has to hold it really tight. In the early days of the experiments, the cages didn't work very well. They were leaky, they were poorly constructed. It was a bit like trying to hold a lump of jelly with knitting wool. The magnetic field is sort of like lines in space, like knitting wool, and and it's trying to hold this wriggling plasma. And it wasn't really until the 1990s that we got anything like the temperatures that were necessary to make it work.
1: But now we can do that. Just talk me through that early 90s phase then. So in principle, it sounds simple that you would hold uh, a hot Charged gas within a magnetic field and just raise the temperature until the atoms get energetic enough to collide and fuse. When did scientists first achieve that? And how far have we got today in making things fuse?
2: There wasn't completely a breakthrough moment. What happened was we got better and better at it. People were trying from about 1950 onwards. And by the end of the 1960s, the Russians had actually. Got a device to get up to about 10 million degrees called the tokamak. And we all converted our devices to the tokamak configuration. This is a donut shaped configuration of magnetic fields. This
1: is what people probably have seen when they think of fusion reactors is the glowing donut of gas.
2: Right, absolutely. And by the end of the 1970s, we started to build these big machines because of the oil shock, and people were saying, we've got to make fusion work. And so we built JET in the UK and we built Tokamak Fusion Test Reactor here at Princeton. And those machines were just bigger. And if you make it bigger, it takes longer for the heat to get out. And therefore you can heat it up and the insulation of the magnetic field stops it leaking its heat too much. And that's when we started to achieve those amazing temperatures through the 1980s and into the 1990s. And by 1994 here in in Princeton, we were regularly achieving temperatures over 250 million degrees.
1: There's been a lot of incremental progress over the years. And in fact, last December, an American experiment called NIF reached a milestone that many hailed as a breakthrough.
0: A huge breakthrough in producing an endless supply of clean, cheap power without radioactive... The United States
2: has announced a significant breakthrough in the quest for nuclear fusion.
1: It
3: sounds too good to be true. Energy that is neither polluting nor radioactive.
1: Even I got intrigued about the results coming out of NIF last year, as I told our daily podcast, The Intelligence.
4: Is this the start of a new energy age for the world?
1: From a scientific point of view, it's definitely an important step. We will create fusion energy in some form in 50 or 60 or 70 years. But what's 100 years in the scale of human history when it comes to solving probably the biggest challenge we have in terms of our energy consumption? I asked Stephen Cowley what he'd made of that announcement.
2: Using a laser to compress fusion fuel and heat it up to these temperatures at Lawrence Livermore Lab here in the States they actually got more energy out in fusion than they put in through the laser. That route to fusion is to make essentially little fusion explosions, a bit like an internal combustion engine (laughs) has an explosion inside the uh, cylinder. This way to do fusion is to make tiny little fusion explosions and many of them to make energy. And they managed to get uh, three megajoules of fusion energy out and put two megajoules of laser energy in. That was remarkable. It was really an exciting result.
1: So you're talking there about the National Ignition Facility, aren't you? That's the laser fusion technique.
2: Yes. And uh, that's the world's biggest laser. And the fusion fuel was in in a capsule that was about the size of a peppercorn. And it released... Three megajoules of energy, that's equivalent to three hand grenades worth of energy.
1: I'm just curious, how important is that particular development, given that, you know, that's still just a a laboratory, it's very far away from commercial applications?
2: It is very far. And in in order to make that laser pulse of two megajoules, they had to put 400 megajoules of electrical energy in to make... The laser light so they're a long way from anything that really resembles energy break even but i'm excited fusion is so hard right and any one of these steps that we take forward is such an excitement because you know one day one day this is the way we're going to power the planet
1: now um you talked about laser fusion just now having that success and obviously magnetic confinement fusion which is the the, the Tokamaks, the, the donuts uh, are also going along as a sort of parallel track, probably slightly ahead. And the major international project to try and make magnetic confinement fusion work is ITER, which is in you know, many, many countries. It's many tens of billions of dollars being built in the south of France. Can you just tell us a bit about that project and and what it's trying to do?
2: So those experiments, all of them are driven by external energy going in. And they're not sustaining themselves. Because fusion releases its energy in two forms, one as a neutron, which conveys the heat out of the plasma, but also as a helium nucleus, because you're putting together two kinds of hydrogen and you're making helium. Uh, That helium nucleus can heat your fusion fuel by self-heating, And we've never got to the stage where the self-heating really dominates the process. And that's what ITER is to do. ITER is big enough that the self-heating will dominate and we'll get what's called a fusion burn, where in principle, you can essentially stop feeding any heat in and it will heat itself and it sustains itself. And ITER is going to do that.
1: And that's what you want for a power station, this ignition.
2: Absolutely. You'll never make commercial energy if you have to put lots of energy in to get the energy out. And so ITER is a crucial scientific step. And the way that we've gone about this is basically by making it bigger. And it is a masterpiece of engineering. The magnetic field is made by superconductors. It's a stunning project. It suffers, obviously, from being right at the frontier of technology and therefore you know it's it's coming slowly it it really should be here by now and we've had a lot of setbacks in the engineering of the device that have made it a bit slower than we had not a bit slower quite a lot slower than we had originally thought
1: well construction is well way for that and i think that correct me if i'm wrong the timeline for that project to go ahead is that In about a decade's time, you're going to have fusion reactions going on. And then maybe a decade after that, it might provide inspiration for future power stations that might be built on similar designs. Um, So it's still some time away from commercial application if we follow that route. Is that right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's probably the lowest risk of all the things people are trying right now. I mean, we pretty much know that each is going to work. Um, because it's really based on all the results that we've got from JET. And it's just a, a small extrapolation from where JET was.
1: So, so the, the, the physics and the engineering are well known enough to know that if you build a machine of this size, it's going to work. But it just takes a bit of time to get it there in the first place.
2: Yeah. And, and so I think the international community came together to do this. We now see the private sector coming in and saying, we want to do this much faster.
1: We'll hear more from Stephen a bit later on. Someone who's been exploring the flurry of private fusion activity that Stephen alluded to is The Economist's science and technology editor, Jeff Carr. Jeff, you've been writing on the state of private efforts to make fusion work in The Economist. Just tell me, why did you pick now to do it?
5: Well, it's a good question. I've been a fusion sceptic for most of my life, and that started to change about five years ago when I realised that there were a number of companies out there with different technologies who all had private money behind them, and in relatively serious amounts of money. And so uh, we looked into those on a case-by-case basis for a while. And then in December, an American weapons experiment called the National Ignition Facility hit the headlines, with a rather unusual form of fusion, which is called laser inertial fusion, where you hit fuel pellets with a load of laser beams. And everyone got very excited because this achieved something called ignition. That brought it to the public attention, and I'd been meaning to write the piece for a while. So I'd visited a place called Cullum in Oxfordshire, in southern England, where there's a little cluster of fusion companies around a European project called the Joint European Taurus jet.
1: There's a really good chart in the print version of the story which shows the number of companies involved in private fusion and it's going up at a precipitous rate in the last few years. So it is a very noticeable trend and therefore something very much worth writing about. Now in this programme we've just heard about the big government funded projects that are trying to achieve fusion. So the joint European tourists in Cullum in Oxfordshire ETA, which is being built in the south of France. Can you just describe how the private projects are different?
5: Well, for one thing, they have more aggressive timetables, which is hardly surprising. And for another, they use a diversity of technologies. Uh, Both uh, JET and ETA are Tokamaks. And most of them are shaped like doughnuts. And the fuel involved is a gas plasma heated to millions of degrees. And it sits in the torus and, in an ideal world, reacts and the contents fuse together. But the Tokamak is a well-understood technology, but it's a very finickety one. And several companies have decided to try and either simplify the process by using different ways to fuse... The plasma, or they've stopped using a plasma altogether and use fuel pellets, or in two cases, they are using a different system of fuel.
1: Okay, Jeff, let's talk about some of the private companies involved then. You've spoken to quite a few of them for Babbage. Tell me first about Commonwealth Fusion Systems. That's a company based in America, isn't it?
5: Okay, Commonwealth is using a conventional toroidal shaped tokamak, but it's a compact tokamak, and they can make it much smaller than the older designs because the electromagnets which control the plasma use what are called high temperature superconductors. So I spoke to Bob Mungard who's the boss of Commonwealth Fusion and he told me all
4: about it. So we are a spin out of MIT and and what we're doing is we're taking by far the most studied scientific approach which is the tokamak which has the highest demonstration in terms of what you need for a fusion power plant and what we're adding to that is we're adding a very high field magnet that allows us to make those tokamaks much, much smaller. And that's been the problem historically with the machines is they've been very big and complicated. By using these new types of magnets, which we've developed here at Commonwealth Fusion Systems, we can make it both smaller, but also simpler and more economic and potentially significantly faster.
5: So uh, what do you think the killer app of your technology is that enables it to be smaller than projects like ITER and yet um, effective?
4: Yeah, the key thing here is because we make a smaller machine, we can make it faster to build. We can make it lower cost. And that puts it into a different regime in terms of what it takes to deliver it. It also puts it into the size and price point that you would need for an economical power plant, which is something that we know from the market, you know, once. Well, how long do you think it'll take you to get to a full-scale commercial reactor? So we're building Spark right now. That's about 70% full scale in terms of the plant and about half scale in terms of the machine itself that produces power. And it will produce about 100 megawatts of heat. That's going to turn on in 2025, 2026, somewhere in there. So it's deep in construction. We'll start that as soon as we can, but probably like the 25, 26 timeline, similar to finishing Spark. And that means that we hope to have a fusion power plant hooked to the grid in the early 30s.
1: Okay, well, that was really interesting from Bob Mumgaard. But I'm wondering, how do these companies want to make money from this? What's their business case?
5: Well, the business case is that this is carbon dioxide-free power generation. It's continuous and reliable, or uh, they hope it will be continuous and reliable. So they observe two things. One is that we're going to need a lot more electricity in the future. And secondly, there's considerable doubt about whether you can... Even in principle, do all that generating with renewables because you have to deal with the intermittency problem. So there's probably a good market for something that can provide the sort of reliability that currently a gas or coal powered fire station would provide and the only thing that we've got that can do that at the moment is nuclear fission but it's not very popular with the public and so they hope that if they can make their devices work and work reasonably cheaply they will be able to do successfully what nuclear fission ought to be able to do but can't. So I spoke to Warwick Matthews, who's the boss of a company called Tokamak Energy, and the clue there is in the name. They are also, like Commonwealth, using Tokamaks, but they're using a different design, and it was invented by their founder, Dr. Sykes, in the 1980s, when he was working at JET, the European Taurus in Culham.
3: We are the first fusion company to use a compact spherical Tokamak. So...
5: A lot of people use Tokamaks, both government programs and, and some of your competitors, and yeah, they're quite a well-understood technology, but you talked of a spherical Tokamak. Can you explain how that is different from the usual variety?
3: Uh, a tokamak, traditional Tokamak design is a, a torus shape, otherwise known as a donut shape, which is larger. Our original visionaries saw the opportunity to make a spherical Tokamak, think of it more like a, a cord apple shape design that means it's smaller it means it is more efficient the plasma is closer to the magnets and then we incorporate high temperature superconducting magnet technology which is really the key enabler for that smaller design what does it actually mean though it means it's smaller so less capex and it also means it's more efficient at sustaining fusion and that means lower operating costs
5: and when it comes to industrialising your machine, obviously the main target is to produce electricity for the grid, but it produces a lot of heat as well. And uh, I gather there are other industrial uses for that heat. Can you run us through that?
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a great point because we often think about fusion as it's for the grid, it's clean energy for the future. But 40%, by our reckoning, of the future market will be industrial applications. And they can take the industrial heat that comes from the process directly to making it even more efficient. And when we look at those industries, we're thinking of petrochemicals, sustainable aviation fuel production, metal production like major aluminium smelting facilities, fertilizer, hydrogen, ammonia. There are multiple uses out there which will help decarbonize some of the most polluting industries in the future.
1: So we've now gone through the various magnetic confinement fusion options, so that's the Commonwealth Fusion Systems, Tokamak Energy, they're confining plasmas in the way that I think scientists and engineers in the fusion sector have been doing for a long time, but in a much more modern way, if you like. But you said at the beginning of our conversation, Jeff, that there were many other ways of doing fusion that are being trialled by these private companies. What about this inertial fusion set that you talked about?
5: Okay. well, inertial fusion, the usual approach is with lasers, but... The most advanced commercial approach is actually essentially with a gun. You fire a projectile at a very carefully crafted target with inside of a capsule full of deuterium-tritium fuel. And the arrival speed of the projectile is in the case of the firm called First Light Fusion, who are going down this route. their designed shockwave speed... Is I think, 80 kilometres a second, and that shockwave will be refracted through the target so that it all arrives at the capsule in the middle at the same time, imploding it and causing the gases inside the fuse. Now, you have to send the targets through on a fairly regular basis in order to extract energy from that, but they think they can manage this. That's a very different approach from most of the others, which start with a plasma already. But it's an interesting one, and they're moving to the site in Cullum next year to build their penultimate machine before they build a power station-sized prototype. So I spoke to Nick Hawker of First Light Fusion, who
6: plans to do this at the company's site in Cullum. So we're pursuing a new approach to inertial fusion and the radical and innovative bit is in how we make the, the core process for inertial fusion work, which is an implosion. So instead of magnets and all that stuff, the way you heat the fuel is by basically squashing it down really, really quickly and you make a, a plasma sill, which is the same temperature, uh, but it's egregiously dense, like denser than any solid material you can think of. We're doing the exact same thing, which has decades of research and has just had the physics, you know, it's just been proven by the ignition result at the National Ignition Facility last year. So the way we do it is we use a high velocity projectile to make that fuel implosion happen instead of using a laser. And the big advantage is that it's a lot simpler, it's a lot lower cost.
5: So do you think the laser approach is one that could work? I know the National Ignition Facility got fusion, but that's a long way from a working
6: reactor. I think that the laser approach can work. The, the engineering challenges that they face are, I believe, harder than the engineering challenges that we face. The, the biggest issue is the cost of the laser. It's just far, far too expensive. And that really changes the power plant design. So because our driver, our projectile system, is so much cheaper, we can have a power plant which would operate once every 90 seconds, whereas they have to go something like 15 times per second. And that's the difference between having to make a million targets a day versus make a million targets a year. But I do think it is possible. It's just the challenges, I think, are, are, are greater.
5: If this works, if, if uh, you succeed or one of your competitors succeeds, or more than one, what's the role for governmental reactors, things like ITER in the south of France and uh, the STEP project that, that the British government is planning to, to build? Are they continuing to be a useful idea
6: or do they become redundant? The STEP project is on a useful timescale so that I mean for 2040, for the plant. It is too early to be taking approaches out of the game. You know, we don't know what's going to succeed yet, and I think there's going to be more than one successful approach. So until it is clear that one approach is definitely has a substantial advantage over another, I think we should be pursuing all of the above, basically. We, we can't afford not to.
1: I mean, that sounds really promising, but from your point of view, Jeff, you must have written the story about fusion many times in your, in your long career, and it's always been very, very far away. And it's almost a joke at this point, isn't it? But I get the feeling from your reporting that even you're slightly convinced that this might be real this time. What do you think about this? Do you think that any of these different approaches or even the government approaches are going to actually work this time around?
5: Technically, yes, I think they will work. Uh, some of them, at least. The old joke which you were alluding to is that fusion is 30 years away and always will be. And for most of my life, I've believed that. But I changed my mind. There are lots of different approaches. They all talk a good talk, of course.
1: Well, they have to for investors, don't they?
5: Of course they do. But, you know, the companies we've been talking about, uh, most of them have got more than $250 million of investment. And in one case, which is the case of Commonwealth, they have $2 billion in the bank to build the stuff with. They're working, at least in the case of the tokamaks, with technology which is understood, even though it's very, very temperamental. And the other approaches should work in theory. The gun approach has been tested at fair speed and is going up. All of these things look as though they ought to work if the machines can be beaten into shape. So whether they will work well enough to be reliable sources of power generation is the question, and if they are, will that be cheap enough? But it's my personal view that the joke's now over, because within about 10 years, it will be clear either that commercial fusion in one form or another will work, or that it'll never work. And so, yeah, it's no longer 30 years away and always will be. It'll be either we'll have it or it won't arrive in the lifetime of anyone around at the moment. That's my guess.
1: Clearly, the private interest has accelerated interest in fusion and accelerated some of the technological developments and things like higher temperature superconductors, machine learning, all these other things. But I wonder where all this leaves ETA. What What do you think about that? You've never been a massive fan of it, I know.
5: Personally, I think ETA is redundant. Uh, the British government's about to embark on a, another aspherical as tokamak with a slightly more relaxed timetable than tokamak energy are using. That's probably worth pursuing. Uh, it's relatively cheap. You might learn some interesting physics there that the private companies aren't learning. And I'm not against the idea of governments running fusion projects, but ITER is an exception. ETA is a behemoth. It's being built in Provence, the... Authorities who are building it are very cagey about how much it'll cost, but America's Department of Energy did a calculation a couple of years ago and they came up with $65 billion. And it's out of date because it's not using at least i don't think it is using these high temperature superconductors and if it is they've been retrofitted onto a design that wasn't intended to use them. and it strikes me as something that's now unnecessary you've got smaller government projects which can give you the physics and you've got a lot of private capital going into hopeful commercial reactors and the whole point of doing this is to generate electricity i mean there's no other reason to do it we're not at least I personally am not that interested in the physics of tritium, deuterium, plasmas. You only want to know about that but turning it into electricity. It's not like doing fundamental particle physics where you want to know because it's interesting. So my personal view is that I wish it hadn't started. It's a shame.
1: Well, you've given us a prediction for the 10 years time. So I think that uh, that means you've booked yourself in for a conversation in 10 years time to work out. I uh, yeah, yeah. will be uh, happy to do happening. that. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can see if your predictions come true. Um, just that's been really fascinating. Thank you for all of that. Before you go, though, I'd like to ask you, aside from your fusion piece, what else have you been enjoying from the current issue of The Economist?
5: Well, a story we ran a few weeks ago and the story that we are about to publish have an interesting resonance. We've been talking about big physics here. These are stories about big biology. And the one next week is about the Human Genome Project, which happened in the 1990s. And it's the 20th anniversary in April of the point where it was declared complete. And that was the first big project in biology rather than physics. It produced a model for doing collaborative large-scale biology between different laboratories and that has resulted among other things in a project called the human cell atlas and this I wrote about in February which is in its way even more ambitious than the human genome project which is to first of all discover and then map every single cell type in the human body and having understood that you can then understand how things go wrong and you can with luck think of new ways to intervene and either treat or prevent them
1: Jeff, that was a characteristically very thoughtful reply from you. And since you're plugging that, we should plug the fact that there'll be an episode of Babbage coming up on the 20th anniversary of the Human Genome Project. Uh, One of our colleagues visited the Sanger Centre, which played a pivotal role in the development of the first human genome sequence. So listeners can look out for that too. To read all of our content, you need to subscribe to The Economist. If you're not a subscriber, go to economist.com slash podcast offer for your free 30 day digital subscription to The Economist. If you're already a subscriber, thank you. Geoff, thank you very much for joining me.
5: And thank you, Alok.
1: <laughs> Coming up, we'll draw on Stephen Cowley's decades of insights into nuclear fusion projects to work out whether this really is the dawn of a new age for the technology. Today on Babbage, we're looking at the prospects of private nuclear fusion. We've just heard about the potential of private companies who've entered the race to build a working fusion reactor. The Economist's science editor just told us that he's finally on the verge of being convinced that fusion will finally happen one day. But what about the scientist who's been instrumental in developing and leading our understanding of nuclear fusion itself? Stephen Cowley has led numerous large-scale fusion facilities for almost four decades, both in Britain and America. With dozens of private companies now entering his patch, I wanted his insights on how to make sense of the new world of fusion. Well,
2: you know, I have many emotions, one of which is obviously getting uh, a... of money. I mean, we've had $5 billion in a few years invested in fusion companies. That's a lot of money. And they're doing a lot of interesting things with that money. So on one hand, I'm, I'm absolutely excited about it. And we're beginning as a public sector organization to work with these companies and try and help them with their ideas to move them forward because they need help. That's on one side. And I think the need for fusion couldn't have got more stark in the last few years, that we really need fusion to come in and provide what we call a firm energy source to go alongside renewable energy and at some point to replace conventional nuclear. But the downside of the fusion companies is that there's an awful lot of them. Some of them are not terribly credible, Um, they're kind of bonkers ideas. But the other point is that in order to interact with the private world, you've got to put timescales on this that may not be realistic. You know, it isn't five years to be able to deliver a fusion power station right now. There are too many problems to solve at that time, and there are too many hurdles to get over. Not only do we have to make the fusion process, you know, produce more energy than it consumes, which we've never done, then we have to engineer the the method of extracting the heat and making electricity. Then we have to make sure that the materials on the walls are going to survive long enough that it's worth investing all the money in building a fusion power station. So I figure the timescale for these problems to be solved is more like the U.S. National Academy of Sciences said in a recent report. We could possibly be talking about making some fusion electricity towards the end of the 2030s. That would be first electricity. And having a commercial impact probably after the middle of the century. But talking about delivering commercial power stations, as some of these companies are saying, in five years, uh, I I don't think that's going to happen.
1: I wonder what you make of that sort of set of ideas. They might work, they might not work, but they're certainly innovative.
2: Yeah, uh, (laughs) there's something, at least 40 private fusion companies now all with different ideas. And they range from things that absolutely can't work because they violate some law of physics to ones where they don't violate a law of physics. This might be a wonderful way to do fusion, but we're a long way from demonstrating it. I mean, ultimately you've got to get something to 150, 200, 300 million degrees, something like that. And most of these innovative concepts are struggling to get you know the first few million degrees. And so we'll see, but they have a long development path in order to get you know, to the frontier.
1: So th- these companies have a lot of challenges ahead and perhaps their claims of achieving fusion power for the grid are maybe accelerated and perhaps won't happen. But I'm just curious to know from your point of view, the fact that billions of dollars of research money has gone into these companies, the fact that there's so much interest and excitement Is there a net positive that you can see from this flurry of interest in private companies?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, no, 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 the the flood of money and the flood of young, early career people coming in with ideas and things, that's going to make a big difference to us. And, you know, it'd be stupid to think that all the ideas and Fusion have, have been had. There are plenty of ideas to be discovered and This activity will discover a lot of new ideas. And then these companies are developing new technology. For instance, a couple of the companies are developing high-temperature superconducting magnets. This is to make stronger magnetic fields, but also superconductors have to be cooled to nearly absolute zero. And the high-temperature superconductors would make a difference to every kind of fusion that you ever want to do. And so, you know, the money that's being spent by those companies to develop high-temperature superconducting magnets will benefit everybody in fusion. Even if their basic fusion ideas are not necessarily going to be successful, if they develop that technology, that'll set everybody else forward.
1: Now, I don't know if you remember, but you and I stood at the uh, building site for ITER about this time eight years ago. I remember. And you told me before, before, before any of the there was not really much there, but you turned to me, you sort of went, looked off into the distance and said to me, this will work and you will see it happen in your lifetime. Now, given that there's been lots and lots of delays for ETA in the time since, um, I wonder, do you still believe that? Do you still believe that you'll be in that control room at ETA watching Fusion happen and the first commercial power plants being built?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a, a magic... Unshakable. Moment. No, and it's going to be a magic moment. I, I'm going to be, a, you know, maybe a decade older than I'd expected. But you know, I'm jogging every day.
1: <laughs> you're keeping alive for as long as you can. Of course, you've got many years ahead of you. And let's not let people think that, you're, <laughs> that this is somehow imminent. Um, but well, there's always that joke, isn't there, Steve, of, of like fusion being 30 years away? Is, is it really 30 years away now? Or is it much closer?
2: I think first electricity is less than 30 now. It depends what you mean. How far away, right? There's demonstrating a self-sustaining fusion burn. That's what ITER is supposed to do. And I think that will happen in about 15 years. And I think we could get first electricity somewhat shortly after that. Commercial fusion, you've got to build a lot of plants. It's got to replace a lot of you know infrastructure all those kind of things will be making a difference to our energy grid in the second half of the century so i don't think it's 30 years away but it ain't 5
1: i just wonder if we could zoom out for the last question how important is the development of fusion in the context of the needs and the issues and problems we have in the world right now how important is it that the world gets this right
2: the um President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology met just over a year and a half ago and to look at the technologies to meet the challenge of getting to net zero carbon emissions. And the biggest challenge is filling the holes that cannot be filled by renewable energy. For the short term, we may do fission and another generation of fission. I think we probably have to. And then after that, for sort of Millions of years will do fusion. Developing it as fast as possible will mitigate climate change in a way that no other technology can do.
1: Stephen, thank you very much for your time.
2: Thank you very much, Alok
1: Our thanks also to Fernanda Rimini, Bob Mumgaard, Warwick Matthews, Nick Hawker and The Economist's Jeff Carr do go and read Jeff's article on Private Fusion, which goes into a lot of detail on all the technologies you've heard about today, the link to read that is in the show notes. Babbage this week was produced by Rory Galloway and Jason Hoskin, with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist.